Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Massimo Piliucci, a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. He's written extensively about Stoicism, but today's topic is broader than that. Massimo has a new book out titled How to Live a Good Life, A Guide to Choosing Your Personal Philosophy. This is a series of essays, each dedicated to a different philosophy of life and written by a practitioner of that philosophy. So Massimo edited the volume along with Sky Cleary and Dan Kaufman, but he also wrote the essay on Stoicism. In this episode, Massimo covers the big ideas across these philosophies, and we compare and contrast various traditions such as Buddhism, Epicureanism, Taoism, Confucianism, and Stoicism. And we do a deeper dive into Stoicism since that is Massimo's preferred philosophy of life. Massimo also talks about the three components of a philosophy of life and why it's important for everyone to have a philosophy of life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Massimo as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Massimo Piliucci. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Massimo Piliucci, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm really excited about the topic. We're going to discuss today a book you recently put out in collaboration with Sky Cleary and Daniel Kaufman titled How to Live a Good Life, a question that is near and dear to our hearts here at the Good Life Podcast. The book is a really fun read. It's excellent. It's a collection of essays from a wide variety of thinkers and writers, each of whom has adopted a certain philosophy or religion, and they essentially explain their particular philosophic tradition and why it works for them. So you have Owen Flanagan writing about Buddhism. You've got Robin Wang writing about Taoism. Daniel Kaufman, your co-editors, writing about Aristotelianism. You yourself write about Stoicism, and there's, I could go on, there's 15 <laughs> essays in all, and it covers a really tremendous diversity of thought, human history from ancient to modern. You cover Eastern and Western philosophies. It moves from the religious to the secular. So it's really a tremendous resource for someone who's interested in studying how to live the good life and an excellent introduction to various traditions and perspectives. So I certainly learned a lot, want to dive into it. So talk a little bit about this project, how you came to it, what you were hoping to accomplish with the book. Yeah, the book, as you say, it's, it's like it's, it was a lot of fun to, to just put together. This is a project that came out of a podcast, actually, that Dan Kaufman was hosting. He hosts a regular show called Sophia for uh, Blogging Heads TV. And uh, he hosted both Sky and myself uh, talking about the difference between existentialism, which is Sky's preferred philosophy of life, and stoicism. And at the end of the episode, I say, you know, guys, it would be fun if we actually enlarge, you know, broaden this discussion and maybe put together sort of an edited volume aimed, crucially aimed at a, at a general public, a broad public, not, not an academic treatise. I was not interested in, you know, academics writing about for other academics only. It took a little bit to find the publisher who is a Penguin Random House. And the reason for that is because in terms of just a sheer marketing, it has nothing to do with the intrinsic value of the project. But in terms of marketing, it's always very difficult. Publishers don't want to publish 
edited books. It's a, it's very it's very difficult to market them. You know, people want one single author, you know, a single theme and that sort of stuff. But finally, we got a really nice editorial group at Penguin Random House, and we got it out, and it's it was really a lot of fun. Of course, it's a it's a sampler. There are many more than 15 different uh, philosophies of life out there. There are some that we couldn't get to either because the volume had to be kept within reasonable bounds or, or because I personally, you know, we personally were not acquainted with anyone who was both a scholar and a practitioner because that was the criterion, picking a, a particular entry and a particular author. You know, who knows? Maybe there's going to be a second edition with more entries. But one of the things that we did that I thought was important you notice that several religions are included also in this in this volume. And that's because we agreed that a good working definition of a philosophy of life should be broad enough to include religions, because religions are just a type of philosophy of life as far as we're concerned. And, and particularly, we think that philosophies of life tend to have three fundamental components. There is a metaphysics, which is an account of how the world works or came about and or came about. There is an ethics, which is an account of how we should behave in the world. And then there is a set of practices. So take, for instance, Christianity. You know, I, I grew up uh, Catholic, so I, I'm more familiar with that particular tradition. Well, in terms of metaphysics, you know, the notion is that there was a creator God who is omnipotent, om omnibalevolent, etc., etc. Uh, in terms of ethics, well, we got Ten Commandments, we got the teaching of, uh, teachings of Jesus, we got, you know, that, that sort of stuff, whatever you find in the Gospels, etc., and in terms of practices, you know, you go to church, you uh, interact with other Christians, you listen to sermons, you read scripture, you pray, that sort of stuff. And the same kind of argument, the same kind of structure is, is actually found in all the other traditions, including the Eastern ones. You know, if you're a Buddhist, you have, again, a metaphysics, you know, that has to do to deal with karma and, you know, reincarnation and all that sort of stuff. You also have, of course, an ethics, you have the full noble truths, the eightfold path to enlightenment, and you have techniques, you know, you have practices, you have med different kinds of meditation, for instance. So, so broadly speaking, we think that both philosophies and, you know, secular philosophy or more or less secular philosophies and religions count as a philosophy of life. Yeah, I think that's great. And I believe that many people sort of fall into a philosophy because of the tradition they were born into, or maybe later in life they adapt sort of a, a secular humanism if they move away from religion, but they often don't spend a lot of time defining what it is really that's driving their decision-making. And I think it was William Irvine, who we had on the podcast about a year ago, early in his book, The Guide to the Good Life, he talks about the importance of having a philosophy of life. And it made a lot of sense for me, caused me to think about what have I really done to discern what my philosophy is. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think other people might be in the same boat, why it's so important to have a philosophy of life, or maybe even question the one that was given to you so you know it's one that is right for you. Right. So there are two points here. First of all, I think that Bill is exactly correct about the importance of having a philosophy of life. The way he puts it is like, look, if you don't, if you don't actually, if you're not aware of why you're doing things throughout life, you, you risk getting to the end of it, looking back and say, oh, I mislit my life. I, I did something, you know, I did things kind of in a random or a hazard way or in a way that was kind of being pushed by circumstances and people without actually really taking control as much, so much as it is possible of my own life. So that is the danger of not having a philosophy of life. But I would go even further. I would say everyone does have a philosophy of life. 
uh, because by definition, you, you know, you could grow up in a religious tradition or a philosophical tradition if you're not, if your family is not religious, and you kind of automatically pick it, pick it up. As I said, I grew up Catholic. Why? Well, because I grew up in Rome, and you know, most Italians are Catholic, or at least nominally Catholic. So, so you pick it up. It's not like I made a choice. It's just when I was little, you know, and then young, young uh, adult, uh, you know, the, this thing kind of became uh, absorbed from the culture, from my parents, etc. However, some of us uh, think that at some point in life, it's it's really a good idea to stop and say, well, yes, I picked up this because I grew up in a particular culture or environment, but is it really working for me? Is it, does it really make sense? Now, you don't want to do that all the time. You don't want to just spend your life, you know, questioning your philosophy of life because you have to live it. (laughs) But from time to time, I think it is, especially when at junctures that are important, when you have to make major decisions about your life or when you feel in a more reflective kind of mood and say, okay, this is my, I don't know, 30th, 30th uh, birthday or 50th birthday or something like that. Okay, well, how about you take a little bit of time to sort of say, well, where am I? Where am I going? And because perhaps the religion or philosophy of life that you acquired automatically actually does work for you. And that's fine. But now you're actually cognizant of it. It, is, it. it has now become your choice. Or perhaps it works, but only in part. And so you might want to look at different versions of it. Like there are different, very different versions of Christianity, for instance. You know, maybe Catholicism doesn't work for you, but something else that is close by might work for you. And then occasionally, of course, there is a possibility that it's like, like it, ha- it did happen to me. Like, no, this is not working for me. And, and, and just because I picked it up when I was young, that doesn't mean that I'm bound to follow it for the rest of my life, in which case, let me look around and see what else is out there. What, what is it that people have been talking about for two and a half millennia in terms of how to live one's life instead of reinventing the wheel? You know, a lot of people say, oh, but I have my own, I come up with my own philosophy of life. Well, good luck, because it's really dif- difficult, right? It's, uh, it, it, it is difficult in terms of coming up with a metaphysics and ethics in a set of practices from scratch, especially if you care about these things being somewhat internally coherent. I mean, you know, if you, if you don't mind doing things more or less randomly, fine. But if you want things to be a little bit coherent, then you might want to start with stuff that has been tested over the centuries and millennia. And then if it doesn't work, first of all, some of these philosophies are much more recent. It's not like you had to go back to the ancients. There are, you know, existentialism goes back only to the middle part of the 20th century, for instance, or early part of the 20th century. So there's also the possibility that none of this is going to work, but then by now, and so you have to come up with your own philosophy of life. But by that point, you actually have the tools because you've actually studied different traditions. You know what, what, what it is, uh, you know what, what you need, and presumably you have a better idea on how to proceed. Well, even if someone is pretty certain they have the correct philosophy of life for themselves, this book, I think, is still very interesting because, at least for me, it opened my eyes to some other traditions which I haven't spent a lot of time studying. And if you think about we're here on Earth billions of other humans and the long history of humanity on earth, there's been a lot of thought put into these things like the metaphysics and the ethics and different traditions. And we can only benefit from at least understanding them at a certain level so that we can perhaps adopt certain ideas from other philosophies or just confirm that we think we're on the right track. Let me make one more point, if you don't mind. So an additional reason to, to, to take a look at a book like this and, and sort of reflect on these other philosophies of life is because actually it fosters tolerance, right? Hopefully we're going to go on and, and talk a little bit about some of these philosophies in particular. And, you know, I picked one that works for me, but I've become more interested in looking at similarities 
between, let's say, Stoicism, which is my preferred philosophy of life, and other traditions, such including Christianity, but also uh, Buddhism and Taoism, for instance. Why is that? Well, first of all, because you understand better what, where other people are coming from. Like you, you understand their behavior, so you're in, intrinsically sort of more more tolerant, automatically more tolerant. But the other thing is like, oh, so this good idea in let's say Stoicism turns out independently in Buddhism or in Confucianism, and that kind of reinforces the notion that well, maybe that it really is a good idea if if people from different traditions and different historical periods uh, came up with similar or converging ideas, then that makes you more confident that there's something there. Well. You know, our backgrounds are sort of similar too. I should mention, I grew up Catholic. I, I'm still in the Catholic faith, but I also am very interested in Stoicism, and I see a lot of similarities there. I definitely agree that when you see multiple points, you know, you're, it's like you're triangulating on certain truths. And when you see them, when you arrive at that from several different traditions, it just reinforces for me that, okay, maybe there really is something there. Let me go deeper. But yeah, let's talk about some of these because I was not as familiar with some of the Eastern traditions. I really enjoyed that part of the book. It was right at the beginning. So so you take up uh, Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism right at the beginning. So let's let's talk about that section for a second. What can you say about it? What did you take away from it? So those are the three of the major, they're not the only ones, obviously, but they're three of the major so-called Eastern philosophical traditions. They all arose about the same time. And uh, that was about two and a half millennia ago. And interestingly, they arose a little bit earlier, just like a couple of hundred years earlier than a similar burst of philosophizing that took to place in the West and that we refer to as the Hellenistic tradition, which includes Stoicism, Aristotelianism, Epicureanism, et cetera, et cetera, and which then very strongly influenced Christianity just a couple of years, two or three hundred years later on. So there was a period of about 500 years, almost worldwide, uh, where a bunch of these things were popping up. Uh, and the, people have, have speculated for a long time, you know, why, why that period? And there, there are, it's hard to say, of course, but there are some interesting uh, uh, speculations here uh, that one can, can make. First of all, this is actually fairly close to the um, period where humanity started being uh, characterized by large cities uh, you know, sophisticated writing uh, systems and so on and so forth. So, so this was the time when people were started really had the, had the time and the means basically to sit down and start think about stuff as opposed to just survive. The other thing is, in particular, for the both the, the Eastern traditions that we're talking about now, as well as the Hellenistic ones, uh, all of these came out during a period of political turmoil and social change. And that's kind of typical of, you know, people tend to lean toward philosophy or religion. When, as I said, they're kind of, to me, they're two sides of the same coin. When there, are, when there are major upheavals, major changes, so that people feel like, oh my gosh, the world is changing. I have no control over this thing. I don't know what the hell to do with what's happening. And, and I need some reference points. And that was happening in India when Buddhism was in its formative years, so to speak. It was happening in China when Confucianism was coming out. And it was happening also in also in China and then later on in Japan when Taoism was coming out. And similar similar situation was in the Hellenistic world, which was characterized by the collapse of the Macedonian Empire uh, with the death of Alexander the Great and the rise uh, a little later on of the Roman Empire. The period in between those two was a period of chaos and turmoil in the in the Mediterranean area. Okay, so back to the three big Eastern traditions. So Buddhism is. 
the one that I think I feel personally has actually more similarities with Western ways of thinking. The Buddhists are concerned with the fact that there is suffering in the world. They think that the major problem in the humanity faces basically it's suffering. And that our duty, our ethical duty is to decrease suffering as much as possible. That's how they come up with their ethical precepts, which, as I said, include uh, a number of sort of standard notions, such as the, the Four Noble Truths, which are about suffering and the origin of suffering, and the Eightfold Path to um, Enlightenment, which are about techniques and how, to, how do you approach these notions of suffering. But broadly speaking, Buddhism is concerned with suffering. They think that the origin of suffering, the, the major, major reason why there is suffering is what Owen Flanagan in that chapter refers to as the rapacious ego. The rapacious ego of the human beings have is this notion that we tend to sort of be about ourselves, look out for number one, that sort of stuff. And that is one of, of course, clashes with a bunch of other rapacious egos. And, and that tends to cause a lot of trouble for humanity. Now, often Buddhism is, from a metaphysical perspective, is characterized or presented as rejecting the notion of a self. And that's not quite accurate. And one of the nice things that come, comes out of Owen's chapter is this notion of anatta or, or no self. And he explains that the Buddhists don't think that there is no self. They, they think that there are people, there are persons out there. I'm a person, you're a person, and we're distinct. We're not the same thing. However, anatta, no self, means that there is no essential kernel that is you. In, in Christian terms, basically, there's no soul. Okay. There's no some. There's nothing there that is that essentially defines you. That that survives death and all that sort of stuff. What it is, is we are a bundle of perceptions, as the Western philosopher David Hume put it famously in the 18th century. We are a dynamic process, basically. Right. So human beings, and therefore the human self itself itself is a set of dynamic processes. We change all the time. Memories, uh, you know, character dispositions, and things like that. It, there is certainly such a thing as you, but that you is constantly changing depending on how you react to the environment and how that reaction feeds on, on your own character, your own memories, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's a really interesting, sophisticated view, I think, of human consciousness, human mind, et cetera. And so what they're trying to do in practice is to alter this set of dynamic processes that we call consciousness or self in a way that is more aware of other such processes, I mean, in other words, of other people, and in a way, in a way so that has to behave in a fashion that is helpful to other people that might not get us to the point of eliminated suffering altogether, but it gets to at least diminish suffering in, in the world. Now, there's a lot more to be said, of course, about Buddhism, but uh, moving on to the second one, Confucianism. It's a very interesting, but also very different kind of philosophy born in China, it's, it's often presented as a kind of a legalistic sort of philosophy because the analects, Confucius analects have a lot of very specific rules and you know, things like that, uh, you know, very detailed advice on how to behave in a variety of circumstances. But fundamentally, uh, Confucianism also is concerned with helping other people. And it's also con it's concerned with practicing virtues. That one has, is a characteristic that Confucianism has in common with the Western tradition, including Christianity this notion of virtue as character traits that we need to cultivate and that are kind of signposts for organizing our behavior in the world, particularly when other people are concerned. Now, Confucianism is also, however, different in some respects from parts of the Western tradition. For instance, is I found it very interesting in the chapter on Confucianism to find out that Confucians think that you have a very special duty toward your family and your friends, especially your family. To the point, Brian Van Norden, who is the author of that chapter, 
to the point, he says, where if your father, let's say, commits a, you know, a crime of some sort, you're actually, your duty is actually toward him first and toward the rest of society la- uh, later. And that's very alien to especially the Western way of looking at things, particularly in, in case of Stoicism, you have exactly the opposite duty. You have first a duty to humanity at large, and then only secondarily a duty to your family. So there are some interesting differences there as well. But fundamentally, Confucianism is about family, it's about relationships, about friendship, and it's about behaving properly in society in a way that it's kind of cooperative to other people. Taoism is also fascinating. I, I actually learned more about Taoism by editing this book than, you know, than I ever uh, knew before. It's interesting because Taoism is based on a notion of, uh, of letting things flow in a more or less natural way, right? So the way Taoists deal with problems is not head on, you know, butting their heads against the wall, whatever wall is, is there, but by see if they can find a natural way to turn the problem essentially into an advantage, into a solution, into something. One of, one of the stories, the nice stories that Robin Wang writes about in, the, in that chapter is about an, an early Taoist figure, probably a mythological figure, who was faced with a, the onset of a flood and uh, this was going to be a disaster for, you know, for the people living in the area, for, for the crops, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, people were saying, well, we should build really tall barriers so that we can stop the water and all that sort of stuff. And the guy says, no, no, that's not going to help because what's going to happen is that it's going to be a catastrophe. You know, the, the, the wall isn't going to be doing anything. Instead, why don't we dig channels to redirect the water so that, first of all, it becomes less of a front very powerful sort of uh, front. And also we can, in fact, use the water to irrigate our lands and so on and so forth, right? So this is a typical the typical example of how Taoists actually a- approach uh, life in general. They, they tend to be more laid back and relaxed about things. Like, you know, try to be in tune with how things work because if you achieve that, then your life is going to be much more serene and you're going to find out novel and, in- and innovative ways of solving your problems. Yeah, that's the visualization that I took away from that chapter too, was that idea of water. And I think that's pretty typical when people think of Taoism. It's sort of, I understand it as the way or the path. The and it relates to, in your preferred philosophy of Stoicism, that idea of nature, that nature is unfolding and we're not going to control how nature unfolds. So we have to learn to work with it and accept it. And so I saw some similarities there. In fact, sorry, Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic philosopher and uh, and emperor, Roman emperor, the later later part of the second century, in his meditations, which was his personal philosophical diary, so to speak, he actually has a passage that sounds straight Taoist to me because he says, you know, remember that when you have an obstacle in front of you that may appear to be insuperable, don't charge straight head down against the obstacles. Think about how you can, you know, turn around or look for other ways. And then he ends that passage by saying, you know, the obstacle, if, you care, if you're careful about it, if you think about it, the obstacle becomes the way. In other words, the obstacle itself tells you which direction you're going to go and, and how you can make things more constructive. That, that could have been written by a Taoist easily. <laughs> well, that's a great segue into this next section, which dives into the ancient Western tradition. So I think we have uh, obviously, Stoicism in this section. We cover Aristotelianism. You had a an essay on Aristotelianism by Dan Kaufman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're, yeah, your editor, Dan Dan Kaufman, and right. also 
you had uh, a section on Epicureanism. So let's take each of these and maybe end with Stoicism so we can go a little deeper. Sure. So those are three, again, we, we had to sample. So those are, those are three of the many Hellenistic philosophies. Uh, there were several others. There was cynicism, cynicism, skepticism, Syrianism. There were all sorts of academic Platonism. There were all sorts of stuff. There was, it was a very period of thriving for practical philosophy at the time. We picked these three because they actually are, in fact, were the dominant at the time. And two of them, at least, are still dominant today or relevant today. I don't know a lot of Epicureans, although Iram Crispo, the author of that, that chapter, actually has a, a small little community of Epicureans. Uh, but there are not that many Epicureans out there uh, these days. On the other hand, Aristotelianism is the dominant version in modern philosophy of what is called virtue ethics. So there are modern philosophers, many modern philosophers who are interested in virtue ethics, which is a type of, you know, it's an approach to ethics within the Western tradition that focuses not on the question of, is this action right or wrong, like ma many other approaches to ethics do, but rather, what about your character? Is your character going the right direction? Are you developing? Are you working on yourself as a person? That is uh, it, the general approach of virtue ethics. All three of these are in the tradition of virtue ethics. In modern philosophy, modern moral philosophy, if you talk about virtue ethics, usually you talk about Aristotelianism. And so that's why we picked that, that chapter. On the other hand, in the general public, if you come out outside of academia, the major interest over the last decade, at least, and possibly more, has been about Stoicism. And so that's why we picked these three. Epicureanism also was a major rival of Stoicism at the time in the Hellenistic uh, tradition. And so that's, that's, these three really play well against each other in terms of presenting the reader with a range of options uh, as articulated by the ancient Hellenists. So let's start with Aristotelianism because it's actually typically the reference point, as I said, even in modern discussions of, of virtue ethics. So Aristotle said that there are a couple of things that are important to have a good life. The term that the, the Stoics, uh, sorry, the term that the uh, ancient Greeks and Romans used for the good life was eudaimonia. And eudaimonia is actually, interestingly, a term that is actually used today by uh, positive psychologists because it's often translated as happiness. However, happiness is a vague term. You know, you, to be happy can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean that, you know, I'm happy to talk to you right now. I'm happy that I'm looking forward to a nice dinner tonight with my wife. I'm happy about my, uh, you know, life and how it's going. That, those are very different things. Those are very different senses of the word happiness. So we try to stay away from that, from that translation. Often, eudaimonia is translated as flourishing as whatever kind of life allows people to pursue their projects and to do well, essentially. But I think that more general and more appropriate translation is something on the lines of a life worth living. So what we're after is a life worth living. The kind of life, as Bill Irvine says, that you look back at the end of, the, at the end of it and say, yeah, that was, that was, that was pretty good. That was, uh, you know, it wasn't wasted time, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So Aristotle says that in order to get there, you need essentially two components. Practicing virtue, practicing virtue just means, again, virtues are, Aristotle recognized 12 different vir virtues, but virtues are basically character traits. So practicing becoming a better person, let's put it that way. That, that's what it really means, in broad, broadly speaking. Specifically, you know, more develop your courage, you develop your temperance, develop your sense of justice, those kind of, those are all virtues um, that Aristotle and the other Hellenists uh, were after. So you need that because if, you, if you're not virtuous, you're really bound according to the Hellenists, to live a bad life. Uh, you may have a lot of money, but if you're unvirtuous, if you're a son of a bitch, your life is not going to be a good one. And at least not, obviously not in the ethical sense of the term. 
However, Aristotle also said, yeah, but that's not enough. That's necessary, as philosophers would say, but not sufficient. You have to add something else. Like what? Well, a number of things that uh, philosophers refer to as externals. Things like, well, you have to be wealthy, not rich, you know, really rich, but have a little bit of money because otherwise you're going to be miserable. You have to be healthy, uh, at least, again, to a, to a reasonable degree. Otherwise, if you're sick, you're going to be miserable again. Uh, you have to have a certain degree of education. But not, we're not talking PhDs, but, you know, some education. Otherwise, again, you're going to be miserable. And Aristotle says even a little bit of good looks. If you're ugly, you're not going to have a good life. That is essentially what Aristotle was. Sort of, and and it's, if, you, if, you talk, if you think about it, most people will probably agree. They would say, yeah, a good life is when I, you know, one in which I'm a pretty decent person, right? Nobody likes to think of themselves as, as a bad person. So it's like, okay, I'm a, I'm a decent person. I'm, I'm okay. And on top of which I have enough of those attributes that I just mentioned, right? The problem with that, from my perspective, uh, as a non-Aristotelian, is that, well, good luck. Because a lot of those things actually can go wrong. I mean, the only thing you really control is working on yourself, on your character, and you know, trying to become a better person. That's up to you, for sure. But wealth, uh, you can be as careful as you like in terms of you know, investing your money. Man, the stock market can crash, and you're out of luck in terms of you, know, you just lost your pension plan. Uh, good looks, well, that's certainly not up to me. I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's a genetic lottery. <laughs> it's not, uh, yeah, I don't control that, that part. Health, yeah, sure. We're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So, so yeah, I can definitely work work on my health. I can be careful, you know, do all sorts of things like to avoid the virus and you know, social distancing, wearing masks, washing my hands on a regular basis. Sure, but viruses are viruses. They they might get you no matter what, and then you're out of luck. According to Aristotle, you had a bad life. So, in other words, Aristotelianism it's a little bit of a aristocratic philosophy. You have to have a significant amount of luck in order yeah. to be a good, to live a good Aristotelian life. Can now, I just mention uh, one thing yeah. there? So I, I'm very sympathetic to your critique of Aristotelianism, but I want to give credit to something Owen wrote about, which really struck me in his defense, which was, he said something to the effect, I'm really just being realistic and as honest as I can right. be and pushing myself. The Aristotelian outlook really pushes him to not cop out or to say, I couldn't get there because I didn't have luck. And I thought that was a good yeah. point. Yes. Oh, it's definitely good. You mean Dan? Dan. No, no, sorry. No. I'm, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Dan Kaufman. Dan. That, yeah. Right. Okay. Dan Kaufman. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. He's, he's, he's very honest about it. And Aristotelianism is very, is a very popular philosophy in terms of, you know, from that perspective, even a lot of people that I know, I think are Aristotelian, even they don't think, even though they don't think that they're Aristotelian, they, they might not know about Aristotle, but they behave as Aristotelians. Now, contrast this with Stoicism, where the Stoics say, look, being a virtuous person, in other words, working on your character again, you know, trying to be a nice, a good person, you know, nice, cooperative, et cetera, et cetera, that is not only necessary, as Aristotle would say, but actually sufficient to live a life worth living. And, like, and that is a stark contrast and also a surprising statement, right? Wait a minute, what, what do you mean? You mean I can I can have a life worth living even if I am sick, poor, ugly? And the Stoics would say, yep. Now, this may not be the best life you can live. They agree with Aristotle that the so-called externals are certainly favored, are preferred. They, they call them preferred, right? So sure, a Stoic has no trouble saying, yeah, if you happen to, you know, if luck turns your way, 
and you have a little bit of money or you, you have good looks or you have, you're healthy, good for you. All the, you know, that, there's no problem with that. There's, that's not a problem. But if you don't, if you, if you lack one or more of those things, do not despair. Your life may still be worth living. Like what? Well, for instance, Socrates. The, the Stoics thought of themselves as Socratic philosophers, right? Well, Socrates wasn't sick. He was famous for, for a very sturdy physique, but he was poor and he was notoriously ugly. <laughs> and, and yet, he's the quintessential philosopher that lived a, a life worth living, right? Uh, and so there goes these, these situations like, well, the external circumstances by themselves not, don't define who you are. Is how you handle those circumstances that defines whether you are living a good life or not. Let me give you a modern example. Nelson Mandela. Not a Stoic, although, interestingly, he credits Marcus Aurelius' meditations in his memoir for changing his point of view when he was in prison uh, during the apartheid regime in South Africa. For, uh, he credits Marcus for bringing him out of his un perfectly understandable natural anger that he had uh, you know, against the, sort of the white supremacy movement. Now, Mandela spent 27 years of his life in prison. And no, nobody would, would think that that's a good life. <laughs> it's like, there's no way that you could say, oh yeah, he was having a lot of fun. But for a Stoic, because he was there for a good cause, right, fighting for a, for a good cause, even regardless of whether he was going to succeed or not, he did succeed as we know, but regardless of whether he was going to succeed, even if he had died in prison, his life for a Stoic would have been worth living. Not pleasant, not a life of flourishing or any kind of like that, but it was worth living because he was fighting the right, for the right reasons and he was presenting an, a good example to other people to follow uh, in that direction. So that's pretty much what the Stoics think, that life is worth living if you're doing something meaningful that it's helpful to humanity at large. In that sense, there is a lot of similarities with Buddhism, even though they approach it differently, but that's pretty much the same basic idea. Yeah. And let's talk about some of the practices, because you talk about these sayings or practices that Stoics use to help live in the day-to-day, -day because this is great big picture stuff. Yes, we want to live in accordance with our virtues, but how do we do it? And obviously, because this tradition has been around and it's survived, they've built up these practices and sayings that will help you get there. Yeah. That's one of the reasons Stoicism is so popular these days, because Although all the Hellenistic philosopher, philosophies were definitely practical philosophies. These, these were not people just, you know, navel-gazing and, you know, talking about how many angels dance on, a pan, on, on, the, on the head of a pen or something like that. They were actually interested in improving their lives and improving society at large. And they went at it. The differences between the different Hellenistic philosophies is in the way they tried to do that. But Stoicism kind of stands out because the Stoics really had a lot of emphasis on practice to the extent that several of the techniques that the ancient Stoics developed to become better people and be better individuals and live a better life uh, were actually influencing, uh, by the 1960s, the beginning of what we today call cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most evidence-based type of psychotherapy today. The early versions of CBT were actually directly inspired by Pictetus, by Marcus Aurelius, and so on and so forth. So yeah, let's talk about the techniques. So. At a broad level, one way to think about the life of a Stoic, so to speak, is that a Stoic may approach things by using four cardinal virtues as his or her moral compass in anything that they do. So first of all, let me tell you what the four cardinal virtues are. The four cardinal virtues are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. 
Practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is good for you and what is not good for you. And for the Stoics, broadly speaking, whatever improves your character is good for you and whatever undermines your character is bad for you. Courage is understood as moral courage, not just, you know, the, the bravery of rushing against danger or anything like that, but, you know, moral courage, the courage to do the right thing. Justice is understood as a propensity to treat people fairly in a way and, and with uh, respect, in a way in which you would want to be treated yourself. And then temperance is the notion that you should always do things in right measure, neither too much nor too little. Now, let me give you a, a specific example. You're supposed to, as a Stoic, you're supposed to constantly have these four uh, virtues in mind and anything you do from minor things to major things, check it against these four cardinal points. For instance, let's say that I go to work tomorrow. I won't because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. But let's say I, work, I go to work tomorrow and I witness my boss, who actually happens to be a really nice guy, but a boss uh, you know, harassing a, co a co-worker. Uh, and so it's like, okay, now I have the, the, the conundrum. Do I, do I intervene or not? And if I intervene, how? So I consult my moral compass. What does practical wisdom tells me? Well, practical wisdom, remember, is the knowledge of what is good and bad for me. And for the Stoics, that boils down pretty much to, you know, whatever improves your character is good for you. Whatever does um, undermine your character is bad for you. Well, getting involved in a situation like that actually is good for your character. It makes you a better human being because you're trying to help somebody else, right? Not in intervening, on the other hand, undermines your character. So the first virtue votes for, yes, I should intervene. Courage. Well, it's going to take some courage to do it because it's my boss. You know, I could get fired. Actually, I can't because I'm a tenure uh, faculty at a university. But, you know, it's, I mean, I can, but not, under, not for that kind of situation. Nevertheless, you know, I could get on the bad side of my boss. I could get on, you know, uh, there could be consequences. So yes, it does take courage. So also courage tells you, yep, that's, that's a go. Is it just, you know, the third, the third virtue is justice. Well, yeah, it's because I'm trying to be fair and reciprocal to my coworker. If I were in her position or his position, I would want somebody to, to step in and, and help me out. So yes, that's three yeses already. Now, what about temperance? Well, temperance tells me, that the way I want to do it is neither just mumble something under my breath so that my boss doesn't actually hear me. And then I go, oh, well, I said something. <laughs> but in fact, you didn't, I mean, I didn't make any difference at all. Nor, however, at the opposite extreme, do I want to jump into the situation and start punching my, my, my boss on the nose because that is an overreaction to what the situation actually is. There is no physical danger, so that's not necessary. So temperance tells me that I need to speak firmly and clearly about the situation, but without engaging in you know, violence and stuff like that. So yeah, the answer is I need to intervene, right? And that's, that, that applies to pretty much everything that a Stoic does. You always keep these things in mind. I just described it to you as if this were a very cumbersome process where you have to sit down and say, well, what about, what does virtue one tell me? But imagine that the, the goal of a Stoic is basically to make this, all this process kind of automatic. Pretty much like an analogy to how you learn to drive a car. So I learned to drive a car in Rome and it was a stick shift. You know, initially it was like, whoa, wait a minute. There's all these things going on, right? I need to pay conscious attention to the steering wheel, the, the shifting of the gears, the, 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 the brakes, the people that are in front of me, the, the other cars, the people next to me in the car. It's like, but the more you do it, the more all of that becomes automatic, right? So that you're actually en end up 
hitting the brake automatically as soon as you as your your eyes from the corner of your eyes you see somebody stepping in front of in front of you you don't have to think about it. you have to stop and say well a person is crossing the street what should i do oh i should hit the brake so that's the same notion that a stoic is aiming at that with practice little by little these kind of behaviors become automatic and then you can always reflect on those later on to check yourself and see if you actually done the right thing and that is a second major technique uh, that is used in stoicism. That's called the philosophical journaling, which is pretty much what Marcus Aurelius was doing, as I mentioned earlier. So before going to bed, um, I go, I sit down for a few minutes, you know, try to quiet, calm situation. And then I write out uh, a few lines about, you know, one or two episodes that happened during the day. And I ask myself, so did I, did I do well? How did I score myself? And the notion is, if I didn't score very well, if I didn't do very well, the notion is not to, to sort of indulge in regret and things like that. It's done. So there's nothing I can do at this point to you know, change that. But I want to learn from my mistakes. So I want to reflect. So, so why is it that I didn't do what I was supposed to do? What was going on there? And then the next question becomes, well, so if something like this happens again, how am I going to react in the future? How am I going to to do it in the future. And so little by little, by giving yourself feedbacks, basically, on your own behavior, you improve and you, you become a better person, ideally. Now, you've been practicing stoicism for several years now, I understand. And yeah. do you still journal at periodically and reflect on a sort of philosophical journal like Marcus Aurelius kept, where you examine your activities and kind of put them to the, to the test as far as did you live up to the four virtues? Yes, I do. Uh, initially, I started to, I, I did it basically every day to get into the habit and to make some of these behaviors become more automatic. Now I do it on average, maybe two or three times a week. And as I said, it takes only a few minutes. It's not like you're going to, you're not supposed to write a novel about the whole thing, right? And, and you don't, it's different from a regular diary because you don't actually say, oh, today I did this or that or the other. You just focus on one or two episodes that are ethically salient. Right? If you, if you feel like, you know, something like the sexual harassment or whatever, the harassment that I mentioned earlier, or maybe have even some minor, more minor situations like, oh, maybe today I lost my patience with my wife or my daughter or something like that. Well, that's not good. So what happened? And you, you write it down. So, but yes, I, I still do it certainly weekly. I'll go back to, and also I, one of the nice things about this journaling, if you do it over the years, is that then you can come back to entries, entries from years ago. And, and check yourself. So, so, am I still dealing with the same problems? Am I making any progress? You know, and, uh, and it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, journey of self-discovery. Let's talk about one other aspect of Stoicism that really appeals to me, which is the dichotomy of control and this idea that there are things under our control and there are things that are not under our control and understanding that and how that can help us deal with anxiety, uh, seek equanimity and tranquility and deal with fear and all many of the things that I think people are dealing with today. Yeah, it's, it is a crucial part of stoic, uh, stoicism, both for stoic theory uh, and practice. Epictetus, the uh, early second century stoic philosopher who influenced Marcus Aurelius, made it a centerpiece of his philosophy. Often people refer to it as the dichotomy of control. Unfortunately, the word control is a little bit misleading here. Epictetus puts it this way. He says, some things are up to us. And other things are not up to us. And you need to focus on the first one and develop an attitude of acceptance or equanimity toward the other ones. I'm going to put it to you uh, before we get maybe a little bit more into, into Epictetus' version of this thing. 
in terms of different traditions. So the same concept is actually found in different traditions. It's found in 8th century Buddhism. It is found in uh, 11th century Judaism. And it's found in 20th century Christianity. The famous serenity prayer, which is you know a prayer that people often say at the beginning of uh, meetings of 12-step organizations, such as Alcoholic Anonymous. Well, the serenity prayer asks God to give one the wisdom to tell the difference between what you can change and what you cannot change, the courage to change what you can, and the serenity to accept what you cannot. Right? That's essentially the dichotomy of control. Uh, it, it basically says, look, I need to reflect wisdom. I need to reason. I need to think about what is it that is up to me and what is not up to me. And then I don't want to waste my time with things that are not up to me because those are outside of my control. Those I just need to, uh, to develop an attitude of equanimity and serenity of acceptance. But at the same time, I also need to work really hard on the stuff that really is up to me. So in practice, how does that work? Well, in, 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 a, in a sense, this translates into internalizing your goals. So let's say, for instance, that I go to a, for a job interview tomorrow morning. It comes natural to us, to most of us, to be worried and focused on the outcome. Will I get the job or will I not get the job? For the Stoic, that's exactly the wrong focus because getting a job or not getting a job is not up to you. It's up to your interviewer, you know, your potential employer. Of course, you can influence that outcome, obviously, right? If you, if you do a good interview, you, your chances are better of getting the job. If you're prepared, if you're really competent and competitive for the job, your chances are better. But ultimately, it doesn't depend. It's not up to you. It depends not only on the interviewer, but also on who the competition is, what the parameters of the job actually are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So focusing on the outcome is the wrong thing to do for a stoic. What do I focus on then? Well, what's up to me? What is up to me is to put together the best possible resume so that I am competitive for the job. It is to prepare for the interview and you know, try to anticipate questions and, and, and so on. And during the interview itself, focus on what, uh, on what the questions are and how to respond instead of sort of just wandering around with my mind. Uh, even tiny, you know, minor things like, you know, maybe tonight is not a good time to go out for, uh, for drinks with friends. You know, just, just stay home and go to bed early, you know, get a, nice, a good night's sleep. Tomorrow morning before going to the interview, you know, dress appropriately. Think about what kind of context, social context you are, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things are up to me. And so the notion is then, then if I do this, I go prepared for the interview as best as I can. And then I accept, however, from the get-go mentally that sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. That's how life works. So the interview may go my way and I'll get the job and it may not go my way. If it doesn't go my way, it's okay. There will be other interviews. There will be other positions. And besides, it's not my fault because I did my best to prepare for, for what was coming. And you know, if it turns out somebody else was better for the job, then so be it. That's, that's just life. Very, very useful you know, criterion to, to go through life. It really applies to everything we do. Yeah. If I am confident I've done everything I can to produce the best possible scenario for myself, then I can be at peace with the outcome, no matter what happens. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk briefly about the other sections of the book. There's a section on the major world religions, and there's also one on modern philosophies. So let's talk about the religions for a second. I know that was, you mentioned there's a fine line or two sides of the same coin, and I agree with you. Can you talk a little bit about that or maybe how you and the other editors went about including it. What can you say about the religions? 
Well, the religions that we looked at are Hinduism, uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, a progressive version of Islam, and then something called ethical culture, which is a fairly modern American. It's a religion, although it has a lot of secular aspects to it. Um, it, it was formulated the, the, near the end of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. Well, of course, those are very different traditions. Some of them are related to each other, obviously. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are part of the same general Abrahamic uh, traditions, and uh, we're all fairly familiar, presumably most of us are at least are very familiar with at least some aspects of them. So they, they're monotheistic religions. That is not true for other traditions, like uh, you know Hinduism, for instance. Hinduism is very much actually an interesting chapter because it should be contrasted directly with Buddhism, because Buddhism came out uh, two and a half millennia ago in opposition and in reaction to Hinduism, which explains a lot about how Buddhism actually is structured and, and how Buddhists are supposed to you know, think about the world and are supposed to act in the world, because th there was a, a uh, sort of a contrast there. So it's interesting also to, to go across sections in the book and make comparisons on that sort. Of that sort. Another interesting comparison I, that I would make is between ethical culture, which, as I said, it's grouped under religion because ethical culturalists consider themselves a religion. So, you know, who am I to tell them that they're not? Uh, you know, if they say so, they are. But in my mind, they're actually very, very close to at least one of the entries under the modern philosophies section, which is the, the, the last one, particularly secular humanism. And since I consider myself a secular humanist for a long time before, after I left the church and before I embraced Stoicism, and I actually have worked very, very closely with ethical culture here in New York, so I'm familiar with their, with, with their tradition. I really see very few differences between, between those two. They're, it's a very, very similar sort of outlook on things. One of the things that I like about ethical culture is that their basic motto is deeds above creed, meaning that, you know, you can talk all you want about the theory and about, you know, I believe this or I believe that. That's fine. That's great. But what are you doing in real life to help other people? You know, it's, it's a very outward, you know, other people oriented uh, sort of philosophy of life. It has practices. It, it, lo it really looks like a religion uh, from the outside. And as I said, their members, uh, its members do consider it a religion. You know, you go to Sunday platform, as they say, as they call them, which are sermons, essentially. Uh, they tend to be secular sermons. They're about ethical issues and not obviously based on scripture because they don't have scripture. But it works pretty much the same way. You, you sing with other people. There's community. You know, you have, there's a common uh, meal uh, at uh, you know, Sunday lunchtime and that sort of stuff. And they are very much involved in a lot of you know, practical ways to help other people, just like a lot of Christians tend to do, right? So you go out and you, they organize a soup kitchen or a shelter for battered women and, and so on and so forth. So, so it's, I think it's interesting in those chapters also to make these cross comparisons, not just within traditions, within group. You know, you can certainly contrast, let's say, Christianity and Hinduism. They're very, very different kind of religions in, in, from that perspective. Although ethically, they're not so, so far from each other. One of the notions that I got really, that emerged really strongly by the time that we've finally put together the book, is that although there are major differences in terms of metaphysics among these religions and these philosophies, 
from an ethical perspective, there are a lot more similarities than differences. There are differences there too. I mean, I mentioned one earlier between Stoicism and, and uh, Confucianism, for instance, about how to regard your duties toward your family versus uh, you know, society at large. So there are certainly differences. I'm not saying that it's all the same thing. It's not. Uh, but nevertheless, the number of similarities begins to strike you in terms of especially of the ethics, which I would say, I would say it's the most important aspect uh, of the three that I mentioned earlier on. Certainly, the metaphysics is important because we do want, we all want a story of how the world works. You know, we have to situate ourselves in the world. And we definitely also want to practice. The practices are important. They are helpful in terms of actually bringing down the, the ethics to a, a regular component of your life. But really, the ethics is the stuff that it's where, it, where it's at. And it's interesting and I think, in a sense, comforting that a lot of these traditions tend to have you know, similarities in terms of how you behave to other, to other people. Yeah, I would just second that point. I, as I took a step back and looked across all the chapters, it really does strike you that there's a lot of commonality around the ethics, around thou shalt not kill trying to avoid violence, trying yeah. to, we want to understand what's the right thing to do in a situation. And we want to do that and we want it to be consistent. We don't want to just act randomly throughout our life. So that now when you get to really specific situations and how you might think about them, that's where a lot of the differences come up, but right. the really broad similarities are there. And I guess that does give me comfort in the commonality of humanity, the, this, this common human experience that we all share we're seeking something quite similar, even though we're coming at it from different perspectives. And, you know, this observation has been made before. Epictetus, the Stoic that I mentioned earlier, that is mostly famous for the economy of control, in, in his discourses, he has this interesting bit where he's talking to one of his students. And he says, look, if you think about it, at a broad level, we all agree. And he says, Jews, Romans, Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. We all agree. We all want to be good people. We all want to be helpful. We all want to be living a certain kind of life, et cetera, et cetera. Then he says, the differences come down to the particulars, to the details, some of which are not that important. He says, you know, for some people, eating pork is a bad thing. And for other people, it isn't. So what? <laughs> Fine. If you don't want to eat pork, don't eat the pork. And if I want to eat it, I eat it. That's okay. But at the broad level, he says, we should focus on the broad level because on the broad level, we all do agree that we want a society where people thrive, where people can do their things, where they interact in a cooperative, nice fashion with each other. Nobody, no religion or philosophy in the world preaches violence and, and destruction and dominance and things like that. Those are, there are some philosophies of like, like fascism that do preach that. But that's why they're not, there's no entry on fascism in, in our book. <laughs> well, this has just been a fascinating conversation. Massimo, where can people find out more about your writings and what you're working on these days? Well, there's a portal where you can find everything that I do, or at least links to everything that I do, and that's simply MassimoPilucci.com. Massimo Pilucci, my first and last name, one single word, .com. Or people can follow me on Twitter at MPilucci, M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. -C -C -I. Massimo, thank you for being on The Good Life. I was a very, very much a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.